Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we hear from Jason Van Boom, founder and CEO of Active Campaign. Jason has bucked the Silicon Valley trend of raising money wildly and failing fast. When this conversation took place, Jason had just recently closed a $100 million Series B financing, and he didn't raise his first Series A money until 13 years into building his business. This is so foundational to our discussion and unusual compared to the typical path a startup would take in raising capital. We do get into some of the specifics of financing, but there's no doubt that Jason doesn't measure himself or his success against valuation or revenue figures. Instead, his North Star is the metric of how many businesses are on his platform, and that is measured well into the tens of thousands. And to take that even further, one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that Jason can begin and end his day simply reading customer reviews for churn or complaints they have. And this is something that gives him the pulse on the company and understanding what his customers want and what they don't. That to him is more important than a valuation figure. Jason also makes a great point that rushing into raising capital locks you into fulfilling a story that you sold to your investors. But way too often you can get yourself in a position where you still don't know what your business is or who you're truly serving. Ultimately, this can be a recipe for disaster. I enjoyed our discussion as well about how he's scaling himself and growing professionally into the rapid growth that he's experiencing with this company. I thought he made some really interesting points there for something that frankly, not a lot of entrepreneurs get to experience. So Jason's made a very conscious decision to build his company on his terms. And I think there's some really valuable lessons that can be taken from his advice. So enjoy this episode as I know I sure did. On the line, I have Jason Van Boom, who is the founder and CEO of Active Campaign. Jason, I want to say thanks for making the time. This is, uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting episode considering some of the developments of your company. So um, yeah, appreciate you being here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. One of the things I like to do is start off with a bit of an elevator pitch or an intro to yourself so we can set the ground for listeners and get to know who you are and then we'll take it from there. So what do you say? I'll I'll pass it over to you and you can give us some background on who you are and where you're coming from. Sure thing. So I have more of a programming background that turned into the arts, but the common theme along the entire time has been a passion for helping businesses grow and, and trying to create value. So Active Campaign today is really accumulation of almost two decades now of, of trying to do that and doing that through improving customer experiences. Because I believe at the heart of every growing business is an amazing customer experience. Interesting. And you know, I actually have to say as a, as a user of Active Campaign, I've been there and I've really actually enjoyed the customer experience, the customer follow-up I've seen. So that's really cool. The reason why I reached out to you was from a headline email that I received 
from Active Campaign that you just recently raised a hundred million dollar Series B financing. And what most blew my mind even further was the fact that you're 13 years into building this company now. So can you give us some background there about where you started? And really, I mean, in the world of Silicon Valley, in the world of, well, in Canada, in the world of public venture capital, where we build companies with essentially publicly listed vehicles, this is really uncommon. So I, I wanted to have you on the show for that. Yeah, so I was never really set to kind of follow the norms of what other companies were doing. So I actually started the company way back in the day in 2003. And at the time, I was simply doing consulting and things like that. And I found myself repeating a lot of work. So ultimately, I thought, you know, package that up, put it online, started off even as just on-premise software. And from there, someone bought it. And every time that rare thing would happen early on, I would just stop whatever I was doing. At the time, I was in fine art school. And I would literally just go home and, and just work with that customer, not caring at all about the money that they were spending or the revenue or anything, but more about like, how is it providing value? Where are they having friction? What could I do from a product standpoint to improve that? Not thinking about a short-term anything, just thinking about the fundamentals of how can we better improve whatever aspect of the customer experience they were looking to improve at the time. Well, it's kind of, it's a pretty cool story. I mean, there's this, you see entrepreneurs come into the game and they're just, they're so rushed to raise big money, raise fast money and hoping they're going to hit it rich. And nine times out of 10, that goes nowhere. Whereas you just almost, well, you've seriously bucked the trend here. Yeah. And for starting the company, I, I almost, at times I wish I had some like grand vision early on, like it was going to be like this massive impact or something like that within a couple of years. But ultimately what I was really just trying to do is I, I was trying to pay for college. So the bar was set pretty uh, simple for the time there as well as just learn through that experience. So by working with especially business owners and whatnot at the time that were using our software, I was ultimately just figuring out how to build our business as we went along. So that idea of really focusing in on improving customer experiences and whatnot of other people's businesses, I brought all those learnings back in for active campaigns. So now that took a long time perhaps. And I think some people would look at that journey and say, that's a really long process. But there's actually no piece of that that I would actually wish would be gone. I think those years and that first like 13 years, if you will, that really created our thesis for what's actually driving so much momentum today. Hmm. Huge foundation. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, I'm going to jump off the questions that I put together here just out of curiosity. How do you think your fine arts background has played into the company building you're doing now? Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. So before that, I was really into engineering and programming from younger age. And I think you blend the idea of fine arts. And I, I was interested in like typography and illustration, so not necessarily super relevant to what we do today. But you blend the idea of like any form of arts with engineering and, and is ultimately what you get is some version of product, right? And I think when you look at the increasing need to have a care for that, the consumerization of software in general, that played really well. And then quite frankly, the timing of kind of focusing on that and whatnot worked out well as well. And I think that you have to have a lot of things that go right for you to grow a business sometimes. And I, I think I hit on a couple of them. Hmm. Interesting. And just for, um, if we could quantify for the listeners, by revenue, by employees, by valuation, where would you say active campaign is now? 
So we are uh, around 600 team members. We're up from, we started 2016 for context, around 20. So we've experienced quite a bit of team growth. In terms of annual recurring revenue, we're over 90 million in annual recurring revenue. Wow. Will you share any parameters of valuation with us? No. So here's where I differ from a lot of the industry and maybe gives you a reflection of why in 17 years now we raised twice only compared to some of our peers that would have raised, I don't know how many times. Yeah, yeah. Some, some people that raise nonstop. I think that's really a false validator that is all too often used in the industry. And for when people are starting a business, it almost puts that pressure to think they should even raise early on. The last thing, and you know, we do a lot of talking internally on this as well, I need my team, I want ourselves, I want our authentic DNA to care about customers and customer value, right? So for that, the thing I will always champion and then talk about is the fact that we have over 90,000 businesses on the platform actively using it, not some like false metric or something that is gained, but actual businesses using it and mm. the growth that we're seeing there. I think that's, we need more businesses to operate that way and less about the cycling machine. Well, uh, I, I'm going to say, damn it, Jason, you're not really helping me because as a finance guy, I'm all about smoke and mirrors. Well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I, I think you can, no. have, uh, yeah, you can have some authenticity too, though. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I actually, I very much appreciate where you come from. I think it's refreshing. I think that's the kind of perspective and kind of view that I wish more people, you know, if, oh God, I hate the word, but thought leaders, the ones who, whose opinions carry a lot of clout in this space would say things like you're saying, because don't be building for valuation, be building for delivering something valuable. And go for something longer term. Now, with that being said, it can make sense to raise at certain times. And, and I don't think it's necessarily an A or B sort of thing. I think you can take fundamental practices of not and blend those together at the right times of your choosing, but try to maximize as much as you can do without especially early on as you're figuring out like what direction are you even going and, and what type of customers are you really needing to work with versus trying to hit some narrative that you maybe kind of sold to some people that put some money in. Now, what was it like for you? Because the numbers, I'm getting some of the numbers wrong here, but as I understand, for the first 13 years you're building active campaign, you never raised a dime. Correct. And yeah. then you did your series A and you put 20 million bucks in the till. That is a lot of money. So how did you handle that? So ultimately, I handled it pretty well from the standpoint of we didn't need to raise. I spent a decent amount of time with the investors ahead of time. And I, I truly felt both by talking to them and back channeling and whatnot, that they were aligned with the idea of what we're building, how it's going to be longer term. There's, you know, a lot of people would look at our business and say, let's just move this up market, right? Like you've got all these customers. That's great. Even if you have over 90,000 customers, some people would look at it and say like, uh, you know, that'd be fine with 10,000 if they just paid a lot more. I think you leave a lot of growth opportunity. And even if you only care about the numbers and if you only care about the finance side of it, you actually leave a opportunity for someone to start from entrepreneurs, from small business, innovate and impact your business. And you see that time and time again, you see these, these stories that a business starts small business first, and then over time, growth, whatever, maybe it's uh, just kind of using that same model that's been used time and time again. They just move up market 
And then time and time again, over a period of time, all of a sudden someone else will innovate, starting with what? Starting with the users, starting with the entrepreneur, the small businesses, and impact and oftentimes materially impact or potentially displace some of those incumbents. And so I think that's a different, different version of building a business. I think we're seeing that happen more and more where people are truly thinking about the needs of, of mid-market and a user there are actually a little bit more similar to a small business than some people would say. There was a word that you used just in your answer there, and you said back-channeling. And I want to I drive in on that because I think that's interesting. So you raised a Series A for $20 million, and, and I'd love to get to the Series B as well because that's a big number. But you said that in the discussions with your investors before the check was written, and then also back-channeling. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so whenever working with anyone that you're going to be into a very long-term relationship with, that would be very hard to get out of, which is basically an investor, right? Having an understanding of who they are. So spending time, obviously, things like that. I think just talking to portfolio companies that have been taking part with that firm or have taken capital in the past, but probably most importantly, and, and sometimes the hard thing to do, try to find some that maybe are not the true success stories or the ones that everyone would be super happy about. But trying to understand how, not even just a firm, just individuals, because at the end of the day, it all just comes down to individuals for how your life would be like. And just having a conversation with them. And and I think oftentimes people are very open and, and transparent in that. When I look back at the early years of Active Campaign, I'd say I did far too little of going out and asking for advice and, and always thinking about that people wouldn't have the time or wouldn't want to offer it up. But what I've really found is it's quite a collaborative community for the most part. Hmm. So you should take advantage of that. And what about when reaching out to these investors? I think there's probably across the board, well, maybe you're in a little bit of a different ballpark now with where your company's at and the, what you've been able to raise. But early on, how much time did you, as a CEO, did you invest in doing these back-channel discussions and meeting with these potential investors? And how much did you find they would give you? Or what kind of guidance would you tell an entrepreneur to invest in understanding the relationship before they tie themselves up? Yeah, I think it's a, I would devote a little bit of time to it continually. Meaning, once you start getting some traction or whatnot, you'll get cold outrage from all sorts of different folks of varying levels of perhaps usefulness for yourself. But I think just having those discussions, it's a great time to be building up how you talk about your business and also perhaps getting some perspective from others about even just common themes of where people ask and what they ask about. Now, you have to be in somewhat of a maybe a luxury situation to do that, meaning not having to raise capital because it's obviously a different situation if, if you need it. And then maybe you operate a little bit differently then because you might have a timetable and whatnot. But I think it also speaks to whatever you can do to give yourself as much time as possible, mm-hmm. the better. That way, even if you're not necessarily talking to decision makers at firms, you're at least getting a variety sampling of how people operate and you start to build up a longer relationship. So when I look at the investors we brought on, like there, there was a considerable amount of time ahead of time, both just like email, phone call, just like spending time to really get an understanding. And that's beneficial for both sides as they're obviously uh, tracking or watching from their side as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think time is such a, a valuable commodity when it comes to the strategy of 
how you're approaching your funding. And I mean, no doubt, I think you were in, a, in an opportune position there, not needing the money. You know, the best time to raise is when you don't need it. So I have a few questions around your next raise, a series B. And if I'm boring you with my finance talk, I sincerely apologize because I, I don't think you're in the, obviously not in the business to be in, in the discussions of finance, but I think there's a lot of value that can be shared here. So bear with me. With doing the 100 million, I would imagine you signed the papers and the next day there was not just a check for $100 million in your account. There would have been a commitment, some tranches. What did that look like or how will that play out for you? And, and what were the discussions and negotiations like to establish the, I would imagine, the plan for that capital? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. One were uh, sort of the big thing I believe about or believe in in life and, and especially with operating a business is maintaining a lot of optionality. So what's critical to me is not having any single entity, whether it be a partner or a customer, sort of dictate or set in stone what we're looking to do. So as an example, as kind of aside, uh, early on from early, early days of active campaign, we always have had a rule that we even wrote down one that we never wanted a customer more than a half percent of our revenue. And like, that's fun to say and everything, but we were actually tested on it a little bit as well. And, and so we had some opportunities where we could have taken on a you know, sizable deal or whatnot and decide not to. And the reason for that is the second you have something sort of set in stone like that, or you have some entity that is saying like, I need these features or we're going to cancel and go with your competitor. Whatever innovation you're working on, whatever belief you have and how you can create innovation within your space goes out the window. And then all of a sudden you start focusing on sort of knowing pain points and knowing checkboxes, if you will, or, or the whatever. The tail starts wagging the dog. Yeah. And that can work though. That can work for a while. But then what you end up with is you kind of end up in a similar space to a lot of businesses that just move right on up market in the way of you solve for that known pain point, but it's actually not causing as much innovation as you would like. So when thinking about investors as well, that alignment around that idea is quite key and critical to myself. So I would uh, imagine you would have, have that dialogue with the investors saying, listen, if, yeah. if we're going to do this, this is something that's important and is going to be a clarified term that, that you're not going to say we have to do this. Yeah, and it's also a situation where, yes, you want to have that optionality from an actual, uh, you know, term standpoint, if you will, or whatnot. But even more than that, like you actually have to, and this goes back to spending time because ultimately they have to buy into that and you have to genuinely believe that they buy into to the vision, whatever vision you're creating. Because otherwise, you know, even if you have the ability or something like you don't want to end up in a situation where it's, it's, you know, all of a sudden you're starting to try to manage to whoever you bring into the company or something like that or trying to override or something like that. So once again, all the reason to try to really take time and explore. And I know that sounds like that must be nice under the right situations and whatnot, but I do ultimately think there are creative ways to try to get the business moving, to try to find what you're looking to do, especially earlier on. Like we had times where we could have used some capital along the way, way early on in the day. And we turned to different things like providing some consulting things, I was doing projects and things like that and just to try to bring some capital into the business. And it wasn't always easy or fun, but it allowed to maintain that optionality. 
Yeah, and it sounds like you didn't go for the sex appeal of trying to get the the hottest investor in the valley to stroke a check for you. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so simple, but if you just like focus on trying to actually stay focused on something that's innovative, something that you believe in, and allowing it, even if it takes a little extra time, that's fine. I I think there's situations where timing definitely matters a lot. All too often, I think people can really overthink that though. And typically that's when they're looking at the market, they're looking at competitors, they're looking at the space and they're just thinking like, if we don't do this like right now, or if we don't try to catch up to X, Y, and Z or competitors in terms of whether it be funding or types of features and things like that, that we won't exist or something like that. I think that over sort of looking into what others are doing and trying to compare can get you into a problematic spot and put a lot of pressure on you that you don't even necessarily have to have. I understand or I can understand the pressure piece there. When it comes to the latest raise you did, I would imagine that the, your investors, I mean, they're managing investor money into their funds and they have to deploy that capital and invest it into companies like yourself. With $100 million invested in you, have they said to you that you have to deploy that money in a certain time frame? Surely they're not going to allocate that money to you and say, okay, well, hey, you know, another 13 years, just hang in there, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. (laughs) I doubt that that would be okay by them because they have their constraints. They have their business model and, and fund model constraints that they have to work to. So how's that look for you? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I'd say take the 13 year scenario. If we're the same size in 13 years and we weren't growing or something like that, yeah, that's probably a very non-ideal situation for everyone involved. But I think, and this goes back to like, there's different dynamics with different firms and whatnot, but the long-term nature and, and the patient nature of it and finding what makes sense for the business growth and to take our momentum and continue to keep that momentum going forward, that probably matters the most. Because at the end of the day, that's what anyone will probably care about. Now, you might have some people that try to force a process or plan to get to an end result. Unless that's what you're looking for, I think that's what you have to be aware of. And this goes back to like, anyone can say anything they want, but if you just look at their patterns historically and you talk to others and and spend that time, you can get a better understanding of of what success is. Hmm. And I do recall, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of your Series B investors, but I I was looking on their website and one thing that struck me is that they seem to to tout that they come with a lot of flexibility. And I thought that was interesting in, in how they position themselves as, as investors online. Is that true? Is that part of what you're seeing? Yeah, no, I think obviously my relationship with them from a actual investor standpoint is pretty early on. But to give you a perspective on time, and when I, I spent, you know, I was talking to them for years prior, so I got to know them that way. And, and I think what I've seen as well and heard and whatnot is that sort of in it for the long term and in it for something that creates not a company, like I've never had interest in building up a company and just try to get it all like looking right, get it on uh, stilts essentially, and then hope someone like takes it and then go off in the shadows and laugh about it. That sounds like a terrible thing. I, I just couldn't get myself to be motivated in such a situation. So that's why, you know, really aligning. And, and it also speaks to like, the other thing is nobody has to invest in any business clearly, right? And I think sometimes people would go into a process and talk to investors or if they're looking to raise or something like that and put on a bit of a show, if you will, like act a little bit differently or present things a little, you know, like uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's a big misstep. That's the time where, I mean, you should be 
highlighting all of the, and it's counterintuitive in a way, but like you should highlight some of the, some of the, and you should be authentic with who you are, what you believe in and whatnot. And if someone does not want to invest for that reason, you just probably saved yourself a lot of hassle and grief over the long term. And there's plenty of different types of people out there. And if you keep at it and you keep like just focusing on your customers as like success for your business, hopefully something will work out. Hmm. Now, after raising this money, you say you're now at 600 employees. I mean, that's, I think the last time I looked like two weeks ago, it was 400. So <laughs> you guys are on a rocket uh, ship here. Not, yeah, it definitely wasn't, for, it might've been on some source or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. Than, yeah. 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 No, that, uh, would be, that would be pretty, uh, that'd be daunting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, no matter what, I think it's a daunting task that you're leading here now, but it's incredible. But how have you been managing the cultural change when you're growing at that speed and you have to deploy that money? I think the biggest thing is not thinking about it as, deploying money. The thing I talk to or talk about internally quite a bit is like we're growing really, really fast. A lot of people would look at say like last year and say we could have grown faster. And I'd actually probably agree with them that we probably could have. But as you're building a business and we have a large international presence in terms of customers as well. So we've been trying to address that with more intention. As you're building out additional offices and things like that, you have to take a lot of care. And it's like building a home or building a structure in a way, right? So like, if you don't have the proper framing in place, I don't care if you can hire as many people as you want, it's all just going to cause almost more chaos. And you might actually hold your business back in a way by trying to grow too fast. So we spent a lot of time and like trying to figure out what can we actually accelerate upon. If we start feeling like we're almost growing too fast, what is that pain point? And maybe it's we need to just build out a little bit further in terms of a specific area or help get roles to focus in in different areas because a business is so fundamentally different in terms of how it needs to operate as you grow. And then adding in additional offices has definitely been a piece of that puzzle that we've been learning as well. Hmm. Who do you rely on for advice and for guidance and for a sounding board? So internally, like a lot of different areas from obviously the people I work with all the time to like in terms of leadership team and whatnot, but also just really the voice of both the team and our customers. And the importance of that is I think the more you separate yourself from either your team or the customers, the more distant you become from what you're even building and what's even taking place. And to give you some examples, and this is counterintuitive to like most things. A lot of people would think as you scale, you need to add people in between all of these different areas. And maybe instead of talking to your customers, you just get some giant report that's generated like once every month or two and you read that. But the problem is if you read a summary of too much data, you lose a lot of that qualitative aspect. You lose a lot of that tone and emotion, both positive and constructive and negative. So that's why like to today, we have a couple of things we do and more of the team side, we do basically like employee NPS and we have a bunch of different like anonymous feedback methods for people to provide information. And like I could just look at that as a report and that'd probably be easier to get through it all, but really reading all of it as it comes in. And then in a even like, and I have faith I can do that for quite a while because when it comes to customers, there were periods of time where I tried to take this approach of, I don't have time to read all this customer feedback. Just give me a report. And while it helps in part, I was losing a sense of like, how is our customer tone? I don't care what our NPS number or any of that is, but like, 
how is the tone? Because that's such a vital thing. So today I try to read like as, as much NPS and churn reasons as possible. And that's not always a comfortable thing. Like if you sit down and you read a ton of different reasons why people canceled your platform. It's not exactly like a positive mood setter. But for myself, I feel like that's the only way to truly understand the tone of the customer base and opportunities throughout the organization, not just from a product standpoint, but maybe you see something within sales, success, and support. We're now to a point where both like I do that and we also have a team that does that as well to provide it to be a little bit more actionable and and also to reply to people and whatnot. But I think that's really important to get into what seems like the fine details of things as you see. Yeah. And I I did see that in some of the research I did before our call of, you know, you starting and ending your day by reading customer cancellation reasons. And it is actually interesting. You know, I thought you were going to tell me about the mentors you have who have massive resumes and huge wins behind themselves and you only consult with them to help guide you. But it sounds like you haven't even touched on it. Yeah. I talked to other founders and whatnot that have seen scale, but quite frankly, like they provide more of the, like, how do you scale yourself through that time and whatnot? That's Uh, an interesting topic. Can can you touch on that? Yeah. How how do you scale yourself? No, it's a great question. I think it's also something that's overlooked quite a bit, especially as, as people see a lot of growth because there's an unnatural pressure a lot of founders would put on themselves. Right. And so finding that ability to surround yourself with people that can help you and be able to find where are you looking to focus in and for the areas you are not, like how can you really build out trust and have leaders help out with that, but also just talking to people. It's fascinating. Like half the time talking with other founders and whatnot, it's not some concrete like, here's a growth hack tip or something like that. You're right. It's more like, wow, this is like, this just feels crazy, right? Or this is kind of just how I'm feeling going through this. And is this even normal? And having an understanding of that, you know, and some of it could be joining things like EO or YPO or things like that and and just different groups. And it doesn't have to. And what I found really fascinating as well is I always thought earlier on, well, like early, early on, I didn't talk to anyone. I was just building product. And I think that was a little bit of a miss. And then I started thinking, I've just got to talk to people that have done it before, right? So in my case, SaaS and tech. But what I really found is like the problems that others can help with at this level of like, how do you grow yourself and whatnot? They're not confined to any vertical. They're not confined to any locale even. So really looking outside of the bubble. And, and this goes back to maybe my thoughts and non-traditional path on funding and everything is just not thinking within a certain bubble of like, there's a designated way of doing things. Like I've learned so much from people that have been, running businesses that have nothing, very little similarity to what I do. Yet at the end of the day, the people aspect of it and whatnot is there is similarity and it's kind of refreshing to get outside of your ecosystem. Hmm. Interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of advice here. I think this is going to be very well received. So I'm enjoying the discussion here. Yeah, likewise. I wanted to, well, I wanted to take it back to finance. Are you okay with that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be your thing. I don't know. I know. Yeah. I know. What a nerd, eh? Um, <laughs> Something that is so important for entrepreneurs, and I would imagine you've had conversations with some of those in your network about this, is but is your cap table. So the capitalization, the ownership, the deal terms. How did you wrap your head around this? As I would imagine it was something that wasn't top of your of your list to bother thinking about before you started raising money. And what did you learn going through that and raising the capital and and ensuring that you have sufficient ownership and control? 
Yeah, so I think before I raised even the Series A, it definitely was top of mind and spent a lot of time sort of on that. I think for someone that has not raised in the past, all the more reason to try to take as much time as you can and to talk to others. Uh, this podcast? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and you can learn so much from that. And then also talk to, one thing I found helpful was talking to founders that have raised a couple times and just trying to gain perspective from them and whatnot. So going into it, I think I had a little bit more thought and then aligning yourself to people that they have your interest in mind. And, and that's hard to find. One example I'll give is I had a, an attorney early on, like for the first good portion of the company, and he went way beyond just legal advice or, or whatnot. He actually ended up essentially, quote unquote, forgetting to bill me for like a couple of years. But he had a vast uh, like experience in, in a lot of different things. And, and you could tell like there was an interest in just helping entrepreneurs and helping understand how to get into things. And that was something I was able to rely on in a, in a bit of a different way. Like if I didn't have someone like him and I had some other people that were like not formal advisors or anything like that, but they were just genuinely, if you can surround yourself with just good people that are looking, that have no extreme vested interest one way or the other in any outcome, that's a good sounding board for you. Because then you have something that is neutral as a sounding board, but also has some experience in it. Hmm. I hear you on that. Finding that, if you will, disinterested interest is powerful to get a balanced perspective. Exactly. In going through and raising this capital, were there ever times that you found yourself uncomfortable in the negotiations? Yeah. Or tense? Yeah. I think through any process, like it's such an interesting process, right? Like you start off and everyone's like, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then you start, if you have some competitive tension and whatnot, then maybe it's a uh, fun on your side for a bit or something. And then it's, but it's this weird dynamic that's going side to side. So you get moments of where you feel like, oh, this is a lot of work or it's kind of a hassle or maybe it's uncomfortable, like to your point. I would prefer as much of that as possible in the process though, because you're going to have those points in life, right? So when reaching those points, and so the other side's going to be uncomfortable as well, and you might be uncomfortable, to be able to, to kind of live through that and try to take in like, how are they actually acting in certain situations? And how are you? And would you enjoy going through a, a tough situation with someone? While it's, I wish there was like an easier way, like I wish there was just like a way you could just like click a button and be like, done. Like, funded. Um, yeah, you're compressing a lot of learnings about someone in a group into a very short time frame. That's the time where I would definitely pay attention to the subtle things and not think that everything is going to be completely amazing on the other side. Hopefully, yeah. Right. But yeah. I think a, you know, a huge, perhaps a, a misleading opportunity to, to have the rose-colored glasses on and only to find yourself in a very difficult position once the... Yeah papers are signed now. And also like going back to like what we were talking about earlier, like be authentic yourself, be transparent with what you like, or, you know, don't like, like that's a good time to sort of, and it's counterintuitive because you would think in that situation, you should do whatever you think some other party would think you should do, but that's pretty short sighted. So like ultimately knowing that would give you more confidence in your future partner if, if you were more authentic. Hmm. What do you think in this journey you've had with the company has been perhaps the most powerful learning experience for you? That's a good question. That's a big question too. 
Uh, I know, and I wasn't on the list, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no, I, I like, it's just a huge question. The people aspect of everything is just so, so important, meaning this goes to somewhat of the premise of our business of making experiences that people enjoy and not forcing them on a customer or a prospect. But it also goes to, it doesn't matter how smart any one person is, or maybe you have that one leader, that one engineer salesperson or something like that, that is just extremely intelligent. If they, without being able to spread that in an environment that continually pushes on iteration and innovation and trying to continually improve things, you're going to be held back quite a bit. And so initially coming from more of an engineering background, doing a lot of programming myself and early on products, I always thought of like engineering challenges as like the hardest thing I've encountered at times and wrapping that as well as people and building teams and the cultural aspect of it. That's an amazing challenge and one that I respect and hold dearly and know that needs a lot of attention at all times, but it's a constant. And I think that's the thing. That's a long-winded way of saying the continual learning from that and the pushing keeps things very interesting and exciting. Hmm. It sounds like you're the kind of leader who would hire for EQ versus IQ. Yeah, I think you need a blend of everything in life, but you need to have that thought and the ability to kind of spread that thought throughout the organization. Hmm. Well, excellent. You know, I can't believe we're already pushing towards the top of the hour here. I could definitely be asking you a lot more questions on so many fronts, but yeah. I think it's probably worthwhile that we aim to, to close this off. So this is a broad question, but if you were to provide advice to any entrepreneurs out there, at any level of the game, and I mean, or any nature of business, perhaps that's a better way to phrase it. What would that be? Yeah, what kind of advice would you have, finance related or not? Yeah, I'd say in general, but it also applies to the finance side, just to think about things in a way of just because it worked for your competitor, someone else you're watching, and someone else that's getting news and PR and stuff like that, doesn't mean it's the only path. Like, try to create some path for yourself. Maybe it's a path that even will be slower growth and maybe won't get that news coverage and whatnot, but who cares? You might actually end up with a larger, more sustainable, more innovative company at the end of the day, or at the very least, something that you truly believe in and are passionate about. And I think that taking yourself outside of any of those like common playbooks and norms and trying to think of how can you create your own is a very rewarding thing. And allows you to create innovation. So you should be willing to trust some of your instinct when it comes to that. Hmm. I think that's great advice, especially in the sense that you've proven to buck the trend and have demonstrated something that is truly extraordinary. So hats off to you on that one. Jason, how can um, or where should the listeners follow your work and keep up to speed on what you're doing? Sure. Activecampaign.com. People can reach out to Jason at Active Campaign or uh, LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Thanks for being so open with us. This is, uh, is really interesting, really informative, and keep up the good work. Yeah, I'll keep on using a great product that you have. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the time. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. 
You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.